Hello and welcome to our brand new podcast series, Decade of Excellence, Reimagining Human Health. Through this series, we'll be celebrating the 10th anniversary of our bioengineering department here at the University of Texas at Dallas. My name is Shalini Prasad and I am the department head for the bioengineering department. My guest today is Dr. Vidya Sagar, who was the founding department chair of this department. And today we're going to talk about the history of bioengineering, his early challenges in getting the department up and running, and his vision for us as we look towards the future. Thank you, Dr. Sagar, for agreeing to participate in this podcast, and I look forward to chatting with you. So let me start off by asking you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your background? And what led to your appointment as the founding department head? Well, actually, I'm quite an old guy. Um, I got my PhD in 1969. So uh, I have finished 51 years after my PhD. This is now the 52nd year. Uh, my Degrees are all in electrical engineering. And I was a very traditional EE professor, but my interest in uh, biological matters started when I was um, working for India's largest software company, Tata Consultancy Services, uh, between 2000 and 2009. So I had set up, amongst other things, a computational biology group, which had about 35 people in it. Overall lab was around 85 people, but the computational biology group was about 35 people. We were mostly doing genomic analysis and rational drug discovery. So then in uh, 2009, I turned 62 and uh, I had to retire from my job. So Mark Spong, who was the Dean of Engineering at that point, he hired me to come to UTD and set up the biomedical engineering department, or bioengineering, I should say. They had already submitted the application to the government before I got there, but it wasn't approved until after I got to UTD. And then once it came to UTD, there was a lot of back and forth about, should this be a separate department? Should this be just a program spanning multiple departments? And it took a little bit of time to sort through all the possibilities. And then finally, uh, we decided that a separate department with its own identity, its own faculty rules and regulations would be the way to go. So basically, the department kicked off in about uh, July of 2010. And I was named as the first head of department. And that's how we got started. What led to the decision to add bioengineering at UTD? Various people around the US, not just at UTD, saw the potential of bioengineering as the next growth area. We see that um, electrical engineering was kind of saturating. Mechanical engineering was also beginning to saturate. Computer science, of course, was going great guns, but it is almost now a separate uh, discipline by itself. So therefore, the biomedical engineering area, bioengineering, biomedical engineering, that was seen as the next growth area. And um, there were a lot of statistics floating around showing that this would be a very big area rivaling both mechanical and electrical. 
vision for bioengineering at UTD when you started this in 2010? Well, we really had to be in a slightly reactive mode because we could either say these are the areas we're going to work in and then look for people or you just start hiring good people and then hope that uh, something cohesive comes together. And we pretty much opted for the latter approach. If you look at the people we've hired, like yourself, for example, with fluidics and diagnostics, that was an interesting area. And then we had Heather, who was working in biomechanics, and then uh, I had her also. Then I hired Daniele, who was working in materials. So if you start looking at uh, these kinds of people, there was no great overarching team. Leo was in electrical engineering at that time, and he wanted to move over. I did hire Bobby Gregg after his PhD and his postdoc because he was working in gate modeling and rehabilitation. Of course, he's not there anymore. But the point is that the department had a whole lot of areas. One uh, area that I felt that the department should be in, but it wasn't, was cancer research. And it's kind of ironic that um, in all the years that I was in UTD, I was the only person to get a separate grant from the Cancer Prevention and Research Institute of uh, Texas. It's a very, very prominent funding source. And also, cancer is becoming uh, close to being the number one killer. It's right now number two after heart disease, but it will be number one soon, I think. So other than that one rather glaring omission, I think bioengineering covered a number of important areas. And we right away started attracting extremely good students. So, Dr. Sagar, you would be happy to note that uh, the vision that you had for ca cancer kind of has resonated. We have hired since uh, your departure Dr. Bawe Fei, who is uh, a well-known bioimaging expert from who was previously at Georgia Tech Emory, and he got his Independent Investigator Award for CIPRIT. And additionally, Ken Hoyt got the CIPRIT Small Animal Imaging Research Center. So we have uh, essentially the ability to image small animals and that's funded by CIPRIT. So what your initial vision, you know, we've been able to work towards that now, you know, in the last few years in the with the focus in the imaging space. So the bioengineering program has grown significantly in the last 10 years and is now the fourth largest undergraduate program in the U.S. To what do you attribute this success? So right off the bat, we started getting some extremely good students, as I mentioned. So it was fairly clear that, at least for students in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, bioengineering was seen as the, the discipline of choice. And one of the things that I started as a head of bioengineering was this notion of an open house. And that was quite spectacularly successful. I don't know if it's being continued or not. Maybe there's no need to continue it now. But what we were looking at was out of the people who were accepted by the department, how many people would actually turn up? And simply contacting them, telling them what is going on in the department, and giving them an opportunity to come and see what is going on, that seemed to have made a huge difference. So during the early years, you'll be surprised to know that people showed up for this open house from places like Kansas and Minnesota. They actually took the time and trouble to come and see and of course, they liked what they saw. And uh, that kind of a nationwide footprint 
was important. And Dallas Fort Worth is a very large metroplex for technical students. So I'm not really surprised that uh, BE has grown so fast. So Dr. Sagar, what started then, you know, we have further solidified and consolidated the open house idea. And in fact, our academic team, you know, they help with this. We also have graduate ambassadors. So where we fund graduate students, um, with enabling them to maybe go to conferences, pay for their registration and so on, but leverage them to do the building tours, to show labs off, especially to the undergraduate students, and then, you know, the potential, the parents as well, right, especially for potential undergraduates. So we most recently in the last year before COVID, we had quite a few students and parents show up all the way from Hawaii and some from Alaska coming to see how our department looked like. So. Absolutely, you know, our growth has been uh, phenomenal in that sense. So we've been able to leverage the early uh, ideas that were seeded at that time. See, bioengineering is very unique in that uh, undergraduate students can uh, make fruitful contributions to research. That's much harder in other disciplines. So I think the idea of having open house, showcasing the research, and then actually co-opting the student into ongoing research activities. And that was a, a very natural thing to do in bioengineering and much harder to do in, let's say, electrical engineering or mechanical. So I'm not really surprised. I did, I did fund a bunch of students to go to various conferences, like this iGEMS and so forth. So, of course, uh, resources were a lot more limited back then, but you seem to be having better resources now, so I'm happy about it. So the next thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the initial faculty hires. You had spoken a little earlier about how you went about hiring, uh, but the, you know, bioengineering as a department is an expensive department to fund, right? Because faculty require relatively large startups vis-a-vis -vis other disciplines and then lab spaces to do more specialized hands-on research. So how did you go about you know, identifying the first faculty and the cost of getting them hired. Well, that was the biggest challenge was to provide them lab space. Money was less of a challenge because we could somehow scrounge around a little bit here and there. And uh, Hobson Wildenthal, who was the provost at that point, he was pretty good at managing the cash flow in the sense that if you hire a person and say you give half a million dollars or a million dollars in startup, it doesn't mean that you pay the million dollars up front. So he was quite good at managing that cash flow. But the the lab space was a huge challenge. And now with the addition of the new building, so I, I presume that the situation is somewhat uh, easier. And also I think mechanical engineering must have moved into their building by now. So the crunch on space should have become a whole lot better. But in the early days, it was very, very tough. In fact, uh, most recently, uh, th there has been an approval to build a translational uh, sciences, research and sciences building between UTD and UT Southwestern at the UT Southwestern campus. And so that is a $90 million uh, building that's 
already the money has been allocated for and it will house faculty both from UTD, bioengineering and the sciences as well as UT Southwestern which just got its approval to have their department of biomedical engineering. So it will house both these uh, cohorts of people allowing more collaborative work. So yes, we have grown a lot in terms of our physical footprint since the early days. Um, and I still remember us trying to figure out space for even running our instruction labs, which on itself was also quite challenging in those days. So that actually gets me to the next question. What were the most challenging uh, issues in those early days of the department? Uh, and how did you approach solving those challenges? I think I was very fortunate that most of the challenges were beyond my control in the sense that uh, the space was not uh, under my control at all. And in fact, the space was not even under the control of the DNF engineering. Uh, the provost wanted to control all the space at a very, very fine level of detail, not just say saying this floor is for electrical, this floor is for material, kind of made it a um, little bit out of my purview. So I could only tell the prospective faculty members that I will argue on your behalf, but ultimately uh, there are really no great guarantees. And I think the one who probably got the worst end of the stick was Danielle. I mean, she was running around all over the place looking for a place to set up her lab before she finally got her lab. But she was extraordinarily patient for which we are all quite grateful. But that was easily the biggest challenge. Salaries were not much of a challenge, believe it or not. I actually found out that um, our salaries were quite competitive. And that coupled with the fact that the real estate in Dallas is so cheap, even compared with other places in Texas, and certainly compared with you know, Boston or uh, Chicago or places like that, that was an advantage. So, and also the fact that because we were in a metroplex, uh, two career couples could manage without a whole lot of difficulty. For example, compare ourselves with, let's say, University of Illinois, where if you don't get a job at the university, there's nothing else. So I've, those are not issues. The really biggest issue was space. So what were the most rewarding uh, aspects during the early days of the department? I think the early days uh, were characterized by the fact that many of the outstanding candidates to whom we made offers uh, they accepted, uh, like yourself, for example, or uh, Heather. Heather had several offers, I know that for a fact. <laughs> so so she chose us. Um, and then uh, Danielle. Well, Danielle case is different because her husband is in physics. But still, it was, I mean, they could both have gone somewhere else. So we did, if you think about our strike rate, number of offers made and how many of them were actually accepted, our sector was actually quite good. I used to compare notes with other heads of departments around the country to find out how we were doing, and we were actually doing quite well. So now when you think about the future for bioengineering, uh, what do you think uh, You know, is your idea of where we should be in the next 10 years? And what is your wish for us as bioengineering here at UTD? Well, you will be very interested to know that thanks to this coronavirus, um, everybody is talking about uh, various aspects of the virus. 
So in India, they have constituted uh, something with the awe-inspiring name of National Coronavirus Supermodel Committee. And they made me the chairman of that. So, so this is a very interesting committee. I got to know a whole lot about this disease, far more so than I would have otherwise. So for example, the mathematical models for the spread of the disease. So we worked out something and found out how little was actually known. Then the other thing uh, our committee did was to make uh, predictions for inventories of various things, like ventilators, like hospital beds, oxygen supply, things of this nature. And my view is that the corona thing is both good and bad. It is good in the sense that the system is uh, responding very fast, and not just in India, it's responding very fast everywhere. Uh, the bad thing is that a lot of third-rate work is getting passed off as uh, corona research, okay? I mean, let me be very blunt. So this is what always happens whenever you have a so-called hot area and the research community kind of suspends its judgment, so to speak. So I think once the virus uh, begins to die down, which in my estimation will take around 18 to 24 months, I think my own view is that much of Europe is past the peak because they hit their peak really early and it was a very nasty peak. I mean, let's not make any excuses about that. I think the US is also past its peak, uh, even though the number of cases has not died down to the same extent as in Europe. In India, we are not yet past the peak, but then the prevalence of the disease in India is, is not so bad, so we can cope with it. So once the disease kind of passes, then the wheat has to be separated from the chaff. So all this uh, bad research that people were pushing will be thrown out. And people will start looking at how much of the research can be salvaged for uh, future pandemics. Okay. I mean, let's not forget that if you compare with uh, the Spanish influenza flu of exactly 100 years ago, uh, the death rate was just mind-boggling. People were dying at the rate of, the rate of about 15,000 per week. And the world population was a third of what it is today. So that's like 45,000 people dying per week or 6,000 people a day. We don't have anything remotely close to that today. So this shows all the steps we have made. Genomic analysis has been very good. Um, the diagnostics part has been very good. The part where we haven't yet succeeded is in the preventive part. So we can tell who has the disease, but we don't know how to prevent people from getting the disease. But I think uh, what is happening is the community is coming up with what I call the pipeline approach. If there's a new virus that comes along, everybody will spring into action and come out with diagnostics and uh, possibly preventatives uh, very fast. So I think that is one important uh, theme that's going to dominate because there are a lot of rumors that this uh, coronavirus was actually a man-made virus and sort of a part of biological warfare. Whether you believe it or not, the potential for biological warfare is certainly there. So you cannot always be in a reactive mode. You have to be ready. Okay. And the second topic is uh, one I mentioned already about cancer. I think progress has been kind of slow and steady. Uh, I don't see the kind of dramatic progress I had hoped for when I first started working on cancer in 2010. 
But on the other hand, I do concede that cancer is a much more complicated disease compared with corona, which is after all caused by a virus. So I, I see these as kind of the the twin focal areas, the the viruses which keep mutating at regular intervals and the kind of sustained killers like cancer. Uh, so this is just my personal prejudice. I mean, some of the other things that people do in, in uh, UTD, like say artificial walls for the heart or uh, implants like what Daniel Lee does, those will continue to be important. And But I think that kind of research will keep going on. I, I don't know that uh, I will, well, let me put it this way. I'm not sure there'll be any dramatic new areas other than virus, but I think whatever you people have done till now, you can continue to build on that and keep expanding. And I think uh, we will do extremely well. Thank you so much, Dr. Sagar, for your encouraging words and your vision. You know, it's always a pleasure chatting with you and catching up on how things are going. Thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it.